Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies and Liquidware. Something I didn't share on last week's episode was the fact that it probably contained the largest amount of news stories of any episode that I've recorded so far, which means that it required more time editing and recording than usual. Even if it wasn't the longest episode I did, just by the way of how much content there was, it took a long time to produce. And what made things even worse was, after I recorded it, and I went to edit it, I found that the audio was only actually about 11 minutes long. The microphone stopped working. So I had to re-record the whole thing to make it consistent. And why am I telling you this? Because if I didn't have sponsors like Goliath Technologies and Liquidware, I probably would have just said, ah, screw it. There's just not going to be an episode this week. So I appreciate their sponsorship and it helps give me the kick up the butt required to get this done every week. So if you like it every week, you have them to thank. Security researcher Tavis Ormandy, who works on the Project Zero team at Google, published some really interesting findings about a significant vulnerability that is in every Windows operating system dating back to 1998. Tavis's blog post starts out by explaining he just wanted to figure out how something worked. He wanted to see how desktop applications on Windows communicate with one another for doing things like changing window size, positioning, and that sort of thing. And he was also interested in figuring out if an app being run as a standard user could communicate this with an elevated application or elevated process, with the theory being that no, that could not happen. Tavis started digging into how all of this works. And in the course of doing so, when debugging, found traces of calls to a module called MSCTF whenever the kernel was creating a new window on behalf of a process. CTF is a part of the Windows Text Service Framework, which manages things like input methods, keyboard layouts, text processing, and so on. If you change languages or region settings, CTF will execute when you launch your window, detecting that the language changed and just displaying it correctly. He noticed this CDF process spawns for each new desktop and session, and whenever any process creates a new window. There's a handshake for this CTF protocol, and it was found that any designated server will wait for commands continuously while clients only look when notified via a certain post-message function. So the server's just out there continuously, the client is waiting for this function call. Without giving away all of the fascinating details, essentially Tavis discovered you can simply dummy this CTF process and use it to hook into all kinds of things via process launches. He posted a demo showing that even before a user logs in, when a new desktop session is created and waiting for login, he can hook into the logon UI process, which is executing in system context, and just have his merry way with it. He's suggested other ways of exploiting it through UAC as well. By taking control of the UAC consent dialog, which runs as NT authority slash system, an unprivileged user can cause consent.exe to spawn using the run as verb with shell execute function, then simply become the system or run in the system context. 
If you're listening to the audio-only version of the podcast, check out the video version, or better yet, read the article for yourself. It makes it a lot easier to follow, as I'm sure in my effort to be concise, I'm not really doing it justice. You get a really good grasp of it thanks to the pictures and videos provided by Tavis in his blog post. While there is no patch for that one, there is another story of some fixes for critical Windows workable RDP flaws. Bleepingcomputer.com reports that Microsoft have released patches for two new critical remote code execution vulnerabilities found in the remote desktop services and affecting an all-in support versions of Windows. The two vulnerabilities in this case are CVE-2019-1181 and CVE-2019-118E. In this instance, Microsoft themselves have actually discovered this flaw. As a partial mitigation measure, users who cannot immediately install the August patches can protect their systems from the wormable component of the flaws by enabling network level authentication or NLA. But it goes without saying, of course, patch. In total, the August 2019 Windows patches patch 94 vulnerabilities. 26 of these have been deemed critical. Along with the RDP patch I just covered, there will also be the VBScript patch that's going to disable VBScript execution in Internet Explorer 11. I talked about that on last week's episode in more detail. Bleepingcomputer.com also reports that this month there are two advisories too. The advisories resolve issues with LDAP clients and Active Directory domain controllers and a vulnerability with Microsoft Live accounts. That's ADV190023 and ADV190014. The LDAP client advisory explains how to tighten security to avoid a privilege escalation vulnerability and the Microsoft Live account advisory discusses a privilege escalation vulnerability in OR Outlook Web Access. If you use Symantec or Norton for your antivirus and you want to take the August patches, including for that wormable RDP vulnerability I just talked about, unfortunately there's bad news. Microsoft are blocking this month's security patching on PCs and servers with Symantec and Norton antivirus running as the vendors haven't yet added SHA to support. Some Mac users have been experiencing issues accessing Windows SMB SIF shares after installing the June Windows patches. Apple have actually posted an article themselves with some recommended solutions. Those are as follows. Connect to the server using Kerberos authentication, which requires that you use DNS name of the share instead of its IP address. If your Mac is using macOS Mojave, High Sierra, Sierra, El Capitan, or Yosemite, use SMB2 or SMB3 to connect to the server, such as by going to go connect to server in the finder menu bar, and then entering an SMB colon slash slash address for the server. And finally, you could enable server message block signing on the server. And they warn that doing this on an SMB1 server can decrease performance. Now, obviously, opting for SMB2 or SMB3 preferably would be the best option. But 
if you're currently using SMB1, there's probably a reason for that. So you may have to go for one of the other two options, but best to try going for the newer, more secure version of SMB. WVD or Windows Virtual Desktop is now feature complete according to Scott Manchester, the group manager for RDS and WVD, which means general availability is imminent. Scott has put out the call for all of us currently in the WVD preview to spin up our VMs and please report any issues we might find as soon as possible. And if you want an easy way to get set up with the WVD preview with no need to go messing around with PowerShell commandlets that may or may not work, you can sign up for a free CloudJumper account, which you can get right now today, which will help you get WVD set up quickly and easily. With CloudJumper, it's basically a case of selecting what you want your end product to be. So what Azure region, what OS, what type of office version, and so on. And the product does the setup for you. Best of all, if you sign up now, you get the license for free until January 2020. And this will cover WVD when it's out of preview and into general availability. The Microsoft Azure team have announced the availability of VMs with AMD EPYC Naples and Rome CPUs and AMD Radeon MI25 GPUs for cloud-based remote desktops. It appears the spec ranges for VMs will get increased quite significantly, which should make those looking for extraordinary beefy VMs in the cloud very happy. There's yet another twist in the tale of the data breach of Capital One that I've reported on over the last few weeks. The hacker in question who worked for AWS is reported to also have data from 30 other companies on servers kept in their bedroom. The investigation is ongoing. ZDNet reports that the find will lead to further charges so the case has gotten even bigger. It has been said the evidence against this hacker is overwhelming. There's also a suggestion of a history of mental health problems, including three stalking allegations, previous threats to shoot up a company's office, and a threat of attempting a suicide by cop. The Norwegian Citrix user group community have shared the registration link for their autumn 2019 event. It will be held on October 23rd, running through to October 25th, and because the Norwegians go hard on their meetups, this one is actually going to be held on a two-day Oslo to Kiel cruise. If you've never been on a cruise before and you're a techie, this could be a great excuse to do that. It sounds like it's going to be an awesome event. And it looks like the cost is about 690 euros and can be paid by PayPal if you prefer. Just from the little bit of browsing and research I did, it looks like the usual pricing for this type of cruise costs more than what you would pay for this. So it's a pretty great deal considering you're also going to get two days of great content. Tomshardware.com have reported some news that should hopefully make some Linux users rejoice. A long-standing audio input issue is set to be addressed. Linux users who have AMD processors have been reporting crackling audio since 2017 at least. It appears their suffering may soon be over as this is said to be addressed 
very soon. Google have announced they will be removing the extended validation certificate indicator that appears beside the address bar in Chrome. So that nice little label that shows if the site is secure or not. They stated it did not have the desired effect of informing the users to help them make secure choices. And as real estate on the browser UI is valuable, they will be moving it to the page info menu instead, which is kind of out of sight. This change will come into effect with the release of Google Chrome version 77. Another week and another story of a ransomware attack, this time on a company called Asurion, which is a global phone insurance and tech support company headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. The hacker claimed to have more than 100 terabytes of sensitive data, including employee social security numbers and banking information. There is no proof that the data was used and the company paid the ransom by Bitcoin. Now I must say that the article suggests that no customer information was used. It doesn't specify on the employee information. It appears the total ransom was $350,000, which was paid in installments. This particular story came to public attention when a search warrant was filed in federal court for a former employee who was fired back in March. The company discovered a laptop was missing, which was tied back to this employee. The company then discovered this employee accessed the laptop multiple times after being fired. Law enforcement also began to follow the suspect to confirm he was the extortionist. At one point, a law enforcement officer watched the suspect as the company paid him $5,000. Then the suspect picked up his cell phone and typed on it. A moment later, the company received an email demanding more money. So you can see through the investigation, they're building a case here. Intel have released patches for their Intel Compute Improvement Program software, which is their opt-in diagnostics tool. If left unpatched, it can be exploited by a bad user or malware already on a system to take control of the box via privilege escalation or crash it or make it leak information. If you are an Intel Nook user and you have this software installed, you'll want to patch now. And speaking of diagnostics tools, a diagnostics tool was launched this week for Windows Virtual Desktop. The diagnostics tool for WVD can do the following. It allows you to look up diagnostic activities, be that like management, connection, or feed for a single user over a period of one week. You can gather session host information for connection activities from your log analytics workspace, review VM performance details for a particular host, see which users are signed into the session host, send messages to active users on a specific session host, or also sign users out of a session host. Tim Mangan has released an updated MSIX report card that shows the advances made with the product from its initial launch to today. Sign up to get a copy of that report. I'll share a link for this under reference links on 5bytespodcast.com for episode 85. PowerShell Core now has the out-gridview commandlet available to display data in a nice-looking graphical display. If you are a Citrix Cloud customer, you should be aware they changed the certs being used for the Citrix Cloud connectors from semantic certs to digicert certs. 
You may need to take this into account depending on your current security and network settings. You may need to whitelist this new cert. Thanks to Eto for sharing that. I'll have the pleasure of speaking at the Citrix User Group Meetup in Dublin on September 19th. I'll be doing some demos of the Great Policy Pack. Guy Leach and Martin Zugik will also be speaking, covering topics including VDI RDS optimization and troubleshooting Windows problems using PowerShell. If you're going to be in Dublin around that time, around the 19th of September, you can sign up to attend today. Now that I'm getting a little more settled after my recent relocation, I'm trying to get more involved in blogging again and doing some community work. This week I posted an article about Citrix Remote PC. While it's about Remote PC specifically, this could easily apply to similar products like VMware Horizon's direct access feature. I discuss what I like about Remote PC and some of the use cases for it, and if you are balling on a budget and can't provide VDI for power users in your current environment, this could be a really excellent solution for you too. And I'll share a link for that article with this episode as well. And now the weekly webinar. On August 20th at noon Eastern, Anna Ruiz with Citrix will be presenting a geek's guide to performance analytics. End users expect an optimal experience no matter where or what device they are coming from. It's just fact. Performance analytics gives organizations deploying Citrix virtual apps and desktops the tools they need to gain visibility into their environment with real actionable data. In this webinar, Anna will discuss the following. User-centric experience score with RCA, application infrastructure performance scores, multi-site aggregation for visibility across all your sites, on-premises and cloud setup for performance analytics. If you work with or support Citrix in your environments today for your customers or for your employer, you should check this out because Citrix have been doing quite a lot with advancing in the analytics area. And I believe my buddy Patrick Hobel said at the EUC Masters Retreat, this is actually one area where Citrix are very strong in comparison to some of their competitors when it comes to this analytics. So check this out. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Alexandru Radu Marin shared a really handy PowerShell script that allows you to search for an application's uninstall string. This is something I, and I'm sure many others, have to do pretty regularly. For example, I recently upgraded Citrix WEM to version 19.06 and had issues upgrading the agent on one of my vDisks. I wanted to try to manually install the first I wanted to try to manually install the original version that I was trying to upgrade on top of which meant opening the registry to look for the uninstall string because it just wasn't working any other way I wanted to try and force it manually If I had this script at the time this could have been very quick and easy I wouldn't have had to root through the uninstall registry keys looking for the correct application uninstall string. That's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.